Good. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. We're in verses 13 through 18 this morning. Listen as I, I read God's word for us. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, uh, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we pray that you would soften our hearts and make us attentive to what you are saying to us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this won't be too hard to imagine, uh, you, uh, and hopefully you won't have to imagine. Hopefully this will actually happen. In other words, you will wake up on Monday morning, um, and you will, you will think back over the weekend that was a, a typically full weekend, and maybe there was a Friday night evening date with, fam- with friends or, or family movie night, and... Uh, maybe you met a friend out somewhere or something on Saturday morning, the, the yard work, even though it is stinking oppressively hot, uh, or you don't have a teenager to do it for you. Um, errands or a, or a trip to the pool Saturday afternoon, church on Sunday, maybe a, a small group get together Sunday afternoon. But, but here it is. <laughs> it's Monday. Uh, and the week is stretched out before you like a, like a long road in the desert. I mean, you, I don't even have to paint this picture. You're already imagining the road in the movies. The long road in the desert with the shimmery heat waves coming off of it and the, the mirages out there. And that's what your week feels like. And you get in your car and you head to the office and, and maybe there's stress around an upcoming meeting or, or a team member not pulling their weight. Or maybe you think you're the team member that's not pulling his weight. Or just the week ahead seems long because you're leaving on vacation at the end of it. And you've just got to get everything done this week. Or maybe things are fine and it's just another week. Or you wake up and you make breakfast for the kids and they sort of slither into the kitchen with their bed head and their slowly trailing blankets and in your head and your heart, today is the day that you are going to follow through on your plans to try to do some school this summer. Um, Maybe you're the kid with the bedhead and the blanket and it's frozen waffles for breakfast again and you're wondering, uh, which church's vacation Bible school are you going to be farmed off to this week? But really, all you want to know is, can we go to the pool today? Can we go to the pool today? 
Can we go to the pool today? Can we go to the pool today? Or you roll out of your bed and glance at your your desk and there's the summer reading packet and the math packet and it's mocking you. Um, How do you follow Jesus in all of those places? Does following Jesus even, even matter in the nitty gritty of every day and fine? Like, what happens to your faith when the greatest threat to it isn't necessarily external persecution from the atheist towards out there, but the internal persecution of what I heard recently in an article called apathyism? What fears grip you in the long day, short year of screens and commutes and binge watching and homework and housework and humdrum work? How do you, how do you fear God when the fear of missing out and the fear of boredom is so strong? Does being zealous for doing good in every moment of life even, does it matter? You, you can fall to the fear of man by bending to the expectations and judgments and pressures of other people, but you can also fall to the fear of man by bending to the expectations, judgments, and pressures of your own heart. And, and when we are called to honor Christ the Lord, verse 13 and 15 Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter has been saying repeatedly as we've gone through 1 Peter that we are to make our conduct like that of the conduct of Jesus, that we are, to, we are to live like Jesus would live. We are to live like Jesus would live towards the governing and ruling authorities that are placed over us, towards uh, the harsh masters that have been placed in our lives. We are to live in these mixed faith marriages if that is our circumstance. But in all times and in all circumstances, Peter's been saying to us over and over again, that we are to live like Jesus lives. And we are to do this so that nobody would have any valid reason to persecute you for your faith. And Peter, don't make any mistakes. Like Peter is talking about external persecution here. He is, he is talking about people from the culture coming in and seeking to destroy the faith of Christians and destroy the church through persecution, the external persecution of those who live from the perspective of a biblical world and life view is here. It's here now. And it's only going to increase, my fear is. And, but as we go along this morning, keep in mind all the ways that we allow our own fears to be shaped and catechized by the culture. When exiles forget their exiles and start thinking like natives to the pagan culture in which we live, we allow our inner apatheist to become our persecutor. 
So living as engaged exiles means living in a way that pleases God, not fearing man, even though we might suffer for it. That we are called to honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I, I want to look how, at how we do that. And, but I also want to point out, before we really get stuck in, I want to point out that we are to honor Christ as Lord. And there is definitely an emphasis on that fact. And if you were to sort of take that one line out of your Bible and sort of translate it really woodenly and just sort of without seeking to make it really readable and understandable, it would, it would really say this, as Lord, sanctify Christ in your hearts. Set Jesus on the throne of your heart, if you want to use the, the four spiritual laws uh, version of that, that the only king of your heart is Jesus. And that's what it means to honor Christ. So let's look at the three ways, I think, that we, we honor Christ that we get from this text. First is we honor Christ with our apologetics. And I know that's a, a big word, and I'll, we'll talk about that. Honor Christ with our attitudes and actions. And then honor Christ as his followers in suffering. So honor Christ with our apologetics, honor, honor Christ with our attitudes and actions, then honor Christ as his followers in suffering. First of all, let's look at how we honor Christ with our apologetics. Verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the word there that we get this word apologetics is this always be prepared to make an apologian, an, apolo, an apology to defend. And that's what that word means, to defend. And so there's this whole realm of, of books and studies and, and thinking and debating known as Christian apologetics. And you've probably heard of it if you've, you know, been a Christian for any period of time, but it's the study of defending the Christian faith, right? So you can think most naturally we sort of, our brains go to these, the classical arguments for the existence of God, or, or how do we talk to skeptics about the truth claims of the Bible or the inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures? How do we defend, you know, historical supernatural events like the resurrection and, and those sorts of things? And so that those sort of all in our minds fall under this sort of very typical understanding of what apologetics is. And so we often say, and I actually really love this saying, and we say it because it's good, I think, or I do, uh, that you need to know not only what you believe, but why you believe it, right? And so that sort of sums up in my mind the need for apologetics. And, And as Peter comes to this statement to always be prepared to give a defense, I think he's thinking in several different ways, and I think he's talking to be prepared to give a defense in a court or a magistrate, right? Like if you were ever hauled in front of some civil authority to give an account for why you are living the way that you are living, Peter says to his readers, you need to be prepared for that, Uh, that that there's a sense in which we need to be prepared to give a defense to people who are hostile to Christianity, there's also a real sense, uh, an evangelistic sense, in that we need to be prepared to, to def- give a defense to those who are seeking Jesus. 
and who may ask the very same questions that a hostile skeptic might ask, but they ask them in a genuine way. They genuinely want to know that for their own sake, for their own growth, for their own curiosity, maybe the Lord is tugging on their hearts in some way. And so I think Peter has all of these things in mind. There's probably more things that Peter has in his mind as he writes this to these first century Christians living in this pagan culture, these engaged exiles. I want to ask this question too. Who or what are we to be prepared to defend? Who or what are we defending? What does it say? (laughs) It says to give a defense for the hope that is within you. And so we have all these classical arguments of apologetics on the existence of God and the truth of Scripture and et cetera, et cetera, and they are only useful insofar as they explain the living hope that Peter talked about in chapter 1, verse 3. And that living hope has to be evidenced by a life that stands out in a pagan culture. Jesus doesn't need you to defend him. (laughs) He defends you. But we are called to understand our faith deeply. We are called to, to, to understand the what and the why so that we can adequately explain and defend and proclaim and delight in the very working of Jesus in our lives. The source of the hope, right? The source of the hope that is in you so that we can tell others where to find that hope. And how we give this defense is as important as what we say. So we're to honor Christ with our apologetics, but we're also to honor Christ with our attitudes and actions. The the credibility of our words are to be strengthened by the testimony of our lives, that, that apologetics, whatever the context, is not about winning arguments or being right. This is always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You can use reason and argument as a means to feed your own narcissistic need to be right or to win. As Christians, we have this great resource in the timeless truths of God laid out for us in a conveniently bound volume known as the Bible. And it's a powerful thing. Do you understand how powerful it is to have the scriptures and then to have the Holy Spirit living within you to help you understand and explain and apply those scriptures to your own life? Like that's, that's power, And we can use that in different ways. We can use that in ways that feed our own narcissism. There's a very famous famous line, I think it's uh, Brendan Manning, uh, who's one of my favorite authors, said, remember, we are beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. 
I heard recently on a podcast, we've taken that line and we've turned it over. So now we are narcissists telling other narcissists where they can find a mirror. We engage in the work of defending the living hope of Jesus in a way that honors Jesus. Peter's readers might very well find themselves suffering for righteousness' sake, Peter says. In other words, even if they do all of the things, even if they do all the things that Peter has been encouraging them to do and in all of the relationships and in all the contexts that Peter has described and even in the general sense of taking on the humility and character of Jesus as the example, and they, they still might find themselves under persecution. Hence the need to be able to gently and respectfully give an account and a defense for the shape their lives have taken. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, they're, they're reviling them. They're reviling their lives. They're reviling their good behavior that they are being persecuted because their lives are shaped by the living hope of Jesus. And the lives, the very lives that are being reviled become part of the defense against that reviling, that, that, that we are called to be living apologetics. Honoring Christ with our attitudes and actions might very well land us in the middle of persecution. But what are we called to not stop doing honoring Christ with our attitudes and actions honoring Christ with our attitudes and actions is is part of the defense so that that our revilers might be put to shame not not by the strength of our arguments logic and reason but by the outward evidence that we we really believe the truth that we're defending and you know that because it's shaping our lives. These aren't, these aren't sterile propositions leading to a conclusion. These are, these are, these are bullets that, that pierce our hearts and shape the way we function in the world. They're like stones that are just below the surface of a swift-moving river that that you can't see the stones, but what can you see? You see the way it, it shapes the water that runs over it. Good news. <laughs> we are not alone. We are not alone. Jesus has fought, and he has won the argument. He has won the battle for us. Our defense, our apologetics is not of Jesus. It's a defense of this sure and living hope that has already been secured for us by our ultimate Lord and defender. Honor Christ as his followers in suffering. Let's go back to this, to the, the, the slow burn the slow burn of, of self-persecution and, and spiritual apathy for just a minute. Maybe, 
maybe church and Christianity doesn't seem to be as natural for you as it once did. Maybe you grew up in it. Yeah, you heard the stories, you, you memorized the, the catechism, the songs, the Bible verses, you, you did the things. Uh, maybe, maybe you were legitimately hurt by the church or by someone in the church, or maybe someone very close to you was, was hurt. Or maybe you're just in the period of a, a time of sincere doubting. Uh, you find yourself questioning those things that you've never questioned before, uh, Things you accepted no longer seem plausible. Maybe you, maybe you see the hypocrisy of your own heart. Uh, maybe you know your sin, but guilt and shame has paralyzed you. Maybe, maybe you've never been to church. Maybe you are seeking, you are questioning, you are wondering what this Christianity stuff is all about, and, but, but the church makes it difficult to accept it. Because, you know, you kind of see the church. It's full of people. What would it take to be reminded, wherever you are, way down deep in the places of your heart that only, only you and God know about, and you like to try to forget that God knows about it, but that's the place. What would it take to be reminded that it's all true. All of it. That, that chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 is true. That according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That it's, it's really, truly true. Verse 18 is true. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This this ultimate apologetic is what we need to preach to ourselves. Before we go out and make the arguments and make the defense and share the, the faith in these ways, like this is what we need to make sure that we are rooted and grounded in. This is what we make sure is our identity. This is the ultimate apologetic for our own hearts, especially in times of persecution especially in times of great fear, when we can perhaps even see or imagine persecution on the horizon, whether that be persecution from the outside or the the self-persecution of something like shame and guilt. This is when Jesus is our defender. He is the righteous one who dies in the place of the unrighteous. More than that, he lived righteously because we couldn't. Our identity, our worth, our value as human beings, as as eternal souls that will one day be united with an eternal body, 
comes from the truth that Christ suffered as our substitute so that he might bring us to God. Let me make, let me, I want to make sure I put the emphasis on the correct syllable as I say that. So that he might bring us to God. Yeah, us. You. That he might cleanse us from sin so that we can have a restored relationship with our holy God. That, that we might be adopted into the family of God. That we might have this living hope right here, right now, in the nitty-gritty, snooze-button-hitting, Taco Tuesday, PowerPoint meeting, TPS report, daily grind of life, in the call to live counterculturally as exiles, always ready to explain this hope. And in the frightening inner places of our own hearts. We walk into all of those fear places, suffering places, anxious places, following Jesus. He goes with us. He has gone before us. He has made the most valid and logical and persuasive argument that could ever be made in the substitution of his perfect life, in the sacrifice of his, his blood and body for us, making atonement for us before the Father, justifying us before the Father, calling us as we walk in sanctification to go back again and again to that, that well of grace so that one day we might be glorified, raised as he was. We are not alone. He is our living hope. Let's celebrate that right now. Heavenly Father, as we, as we come before this table, sink that truth in. Uh, help us as we, as we approach this, this meal, this, this dramatic reenactment of what you have done, this dress rehearsal for the celebration that is to come, this, this, this appetizer course for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Lord, as we, as we do that, remind us of who we are and who you are. Help us to, to delight in you as we partake of this sacrament together. Knit us together. Use the, the truth of this living hope to, to, to defend our hearts against the discouragement and the slings and arrows of the evil one and the, the weakness of our own fleshly temptation and the outer voices of the world that, that speak lies to us. Lord, help us to be those who live after the example of Christ 
because we have set our identity in him and what he has done for us. Lord, remind us of that this morning with this sacrament. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.